lot of times we do underestimate transferable skills, right? And we do kind of put limits on ourselves that, you know, we ultimately shouldn't just because we're not quote unquote formally trained in something, right? I feel like that's a question that Annika and I get often like, oh, so can you do my nails or how long have you been doing nails? Or I'm like, listen, I wish I could do nails. I, I, but I frequent nail salons so often in the past because I'm terrible with doing nails. Hi, Offscripters. It's your host, Sewa Ajay Pele, and welcome to episode 164 of the She's Offscript podcast. This is a show where we hear and learn from women who've created unique blueprints for their business success. My hope is that you'll hear their stories and translate their gems into a unique path for yourself. Have you ever been at a nail salon and wondered, what does it take to run this place? All the products lining the walls, the line of people waiting, the phones ringing off the hook. What does it really take to launch and run a successful luxury nail salon? Today's guest Kelly Coleman and Annika Jackson Odebo launched the 10 Nail Bar with no experience. Six years later, they not only have their flagship location in Detroit, but have also opened a second location. They have been so successful, they're now contemplating the national growth of their brand. In this episode, they're giving us a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes to be successful in this business. From startup costs to hiring the right team and everything in between, they have shared so many insights. Before we hear the rest of Kelly and Annika's story, I would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help to spread the word about our show so amazing stories like Kelly and Annika's can continue to inspire women looking to launch their own off-script journeys. With that, let's go off-script with the co-owners of the 10 Nail Bar, Kelly Coleman and Annika Jackson-Odebo. Kelly Coleman, Annika Jackson-Odebo, welcome to She's Off-Script. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Happy So for anyone who hasn't come across you or the 10 Nail Bar, could you share who you are and what you do? Sure. So uh, the 10 Nail Bar is uh, really disrupting the nail care industry by uh, providing, you know, an elevated experience to a routine beauty treatment. So we specialize in nail care. Um, We also provide waxing and lash services all in a modern, clean, um, and community-driven environment. Okay, so whenever I go to a nail salon, I always wonder, I look around, I'm always trying to piece together, what does it take to successfully do this? What does it take to successfully open and run? So I hope you guys can give us a little behind-the-scenes look and a little insight that can help others who are thinking about having similar journeys. But Kelly, I know you previously worked in advertising, and Annika, you have a real estate background why did you decide to go into the nail care industry? Why, why a nail salon? Why nail? Um, uh, well, I think it started just with um, just wanting to create a scalable brand, right? And um, really step into our own entrepreneurial journey um, in our own right. We both come from entrepreneurial families, but we wanted to explore what that looked like for us to build a scalable brand um, as business partners. So um, I think it was less about the industry to start and more about the thought that we did want to serve, you know, women who look like us in our community, you know, in our hometown where we're from, 
Um, and we also knew that in doing that, we could create something that ultimately we'd replicate. Um, so that was a lot of like the impetus and I'll allow Annika to, um, to share also. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah, really it was just wanting to, um, I think one of the other parts that at least inspired me to at least start the journey was to contribute and give back to to the city that we're from. I mean, we're both from Detroit, the Detroit metro area, and um, both we were living in different cities at the time in major metropolitan cities. And I really wanted to be able to bring something of value to the city, so, you know, economic um, development, job creation, but just also just be a part of the redevelopment that was happening around the time that we ended up opening the 10. Um, just wanting to, to not be left on the sidelines as Black women um, and entrepreneurs. And there was just all of this exciting, you know, redevelopment going on around 2000 and what, 15, 2014. Mm -hmm. And, and just, it seemed like a lot of people who are like native Detroiters, people who look like us, Black people, Detroit is still a Black city, um, were not always a part of the narrative or frequently a part of the narrative. So that was really important for us as well. But so Kelly, you said something um, interesting yeah. is that you weren't specifically going after the nail industry per se. It's just, you were looking to identify what was the most scalable, maybe even profitable business. How did you arrive at that for anyone who's trying to settle on a, a business idea? What steps and what markers pulled you into the nail care industry? Sure. So um, really to also kind of pull in and echo a lot of what Annika was saying about Detroit specifically and its redevelopment at the time, mm -hmm. that, you know, type of redevelopment, we see it happening a lot in our urban cores, right, across the country. So maybe not your primary markets, but in a lot of your secondary and tertiary markets, there is this like newly developed, um, there are a lot of newly developed areas and people are getting back to this like notion of urban core. Um, and so with that, you see a lot of developers focused on, you know, attracting businesses back to this urban core, building, um, you know, new residential options, mm -hmm. a lot of entertainment, dining. Uh, but we know to round out, you know, just any sort of rich living experience, you want certain personal services available to you as well. Mm -hmm. So from a business perspective, it's like, hey, they want all of these people to come here, live, work, and play, but where are they going to take care of themselves? You know, where, how are they going to pour into themselves and round out the lifestyle? Um, and so that's really what, you know, kind of led us to explore this notion of personal service and what we have come to, you know, like, appreciate, as well as what we were seeking that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, and we decided to, you know, to create that. Um, so I think a lot of those markers, it, it is about industry landscape. It's about timing um, and it's about filling a void or solving a problem. Okay. So now that you were entering into a new industry entirely, did you have to get any certifications or, you know, take any classes? Specifically, specifically because the personal care industry is regulated. So did you have to do any of that? So for us as business owners, we're not required to be cosmetologists, but yes, from like, you know, a, um, a state 
regulation perspective, as well as all types of like employment regulations, et cetera, we did have to do our research via Lara and other resources to make sure that we were adhering to all of these specifications. What is Lara? Um, just so we can define that. <laughs> Lara, that's a good question. It is a, um, I believe it's an acronym. I think it's Michigan specific, okay. but it is our like legislative and regulatory arm. If you have to get a certification in the state of Michigan, um, you would go to the LARA mm -hmm. or Lara website. I think it's Michigan specific. Okay, though. so I'm sure everyone but can every find. State has, mm -hmm. Every state has some version yeah. of this, right? And so in that regard, no, we did not personally need any sort of certification, but we were doing the appropriate like research to know and understand that our business would be adhering mm -hmm. to whatever um, prescribed guidelines. Um, I think just one note and something that I often share, uh, you know, just in these conversations is that a lot of times we do underestimate transferable skills, mm. right? And we do kind of put limits on ourselves that, you know, we ultimately shouldn't just because we're not quote unquote formally trained in something, right? I feel like that's a question that Annika and I get often like, oh, so can you do my nails or how long have you been doing nails? Or I'm like, listen, I wish I could do nails. I, I, but I frequent nail salons so often in the past because I'm terrible with doing nails, but that's how I know what I want. I know what I want to step into. I know what I wish existed. You know, um, it's that much easier for me to fill this void because this is the experience I seek and I need mm -hmm. for my personal maintenance. So we brought in a lot of our skills as, you know, just in business um, to, to the 10 and, and what we wanted to make it and how we wanted to, to start and grow it. Um, it didn't, you know, it didn't really require us to, to do anything besides the research um, necessary to make sure it, it was appropriately run. Um, but then from, you know, a business perspective, um, it was taking on this new challenge, but with skills that we that we'd amassed. Right. I like that you said that is not to limit the opportunities that you can go into because you haven't necessarily done it before. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, because it sounds like you've had to surround yourself with the right people, with the right level of expertise to make sure that you can continue to be successful. So we'll certainly touch on that. But as you're progressing in your journey, you've decided the industry um, you figured out all the permits and things that you need. How did you find your location, your initial one, and then your subsequent locations? How did the location come about? And I know that you also have to do some sort of construction and tenant improvement. So how did that portion of your journey come about? Yeah, so at this time, you know, Detroit, even though Detroit is a major city, like the development was really concentrated in very specific areas of downtown. Mm. And so there was a certain look and feel that we wanted, you know, the, the building aesthetic to have, um, the walkability of what did exist in the area, um, and, and where we wanted to just be, like what, what is around us, what, what can people do, you know, um, in the area. So it, there were only certain locations that we were looking at. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we both kind of identified this building, like if we could move in here, this would be perfect. 
there were only one or two um, actual businesses that were operating in this neighborhood at the time, um, but it was very adjacent to like the main thoroughfare in downtown, um, literally one street over. So we knew we wouldn't have to pay those incredibly high rates of, you know, being on a Michigan Avenue of Detroit or like a Rodeo, right, of Detroit, if you will. <laughs> but um, we're close enough so that we get some of that traffic and that energy um, without having to pay those prices. Um, and so that was what really led us to this, this neighborhood, um, which is called Capitol Park in downtown Detroit. Um, and then as it relates to our second location, um, really a lot of the same demographics, a lot of the same characteristics, right? So what does the makeup of um, the tenant mix, like who lives here? Are people, you know, at a certain income level? Are they professionals? Are they people who are actually going to support our business, right? Because we still are at a certain price point. Um, and, you know, every business isn't for everybody's. So it needs to be appealing to those who are living and working in the neighborhood. Um, and so downtown is obviously a very bustling, active, professional workforce, but also, as we mentioned earlier, a lot of redevelopment. So a lot of people moving into downtown. Um, and so as we moved and we're seeking, looking for our second location, a lot of those same characteristics were being replicated um, we were seeing that sort of development happening. Mm. So um, I would say, you know, if, if as people are looking for locations for their business, you know, don't just do it off feel, don't just do it off emotion. It does need to make some sense. Mm. You want to look around and see who else is opening up in the area. Um, but I'd say that we were first mover in both of those instances and um, or second mover, first or second business. Mm. And both of those neighborhoods are very vibrant areas of downtown Detroit. So, um, so yeah, those are those are some of the things we thought about as it relates to tenant improvement and like what right, negotiating with the, this all sounds very capital intensive. You have to pay a lot of money before you start making anything. So, how much did it cost to outfit the location so it looks as beautiful as it does now? How long was the lease that you had to sign, right? That's all, you know, investment up front. You know, we never tell our numbers now. We never divulge our specifics. So, but I will say that Google is your friend. Um, a lot of the information that we use even to just come up with our um, forecast and just preparing ourselves to open this business, a lot of it was just honest to God research. Mm. Um and, and we did go the route of self-funding, and that was a personal choice because we felt like we needed to prove out our concept and we wanted to wholly own it, mm. um, you know, when opening. That is not necessarily, you know, everyone's path, but for us, I think we were preparing for a while to take this leap and, um, and ultimately thought it important to hold on to whole ownership as well as prove out the concept and the vision that we had for the business without, you know, any sort of, I guess, threat of, of interference or um, I would say just kind of muddling what we envisioned. Yeah. Um, so that was important to us. Um, and it was a decision we made more, again, for long-term consideration, but that's not necessarily 
the only path mm-hmm. to opening, right? Mm-hmm. And it was, it, you know, it was capital intensive, but through those projections, we at least had a general idea of when we were at least no longer floating the business, mm-hmm. right? Like when the business could at least begin to pay for itself um, and then to profitability. So I think that level of preparation, we sometimes gloss over in all these conversations around entrepreneurship. So I appreciate these questions, you know, even if we can only get but so specific mm-hmm. because the the process and the preparation um, is just as important as like the vision and your desired outcome. Okay. Right. Because so. when I see the locations you guys have picked, this isn't really the sub the suburb nail salon that you pop into. You guys were very thoughtful about the kinds of individuals that you're hoping will frequent your your nail spa. So when I've kind of researched and people have said, if I'm an individual nail tech that just wants to rent a booth, I might go month to month for $500 a month or rent a booth in a place. So even if you can't give us specifics, are we talking five figures, six figures? How much in the range did you have to invest in order to get something at the caliber of where you are? Six, six figures. And, and I think that, again, you know, we did that though, because we wanted to create an experience and mm-hmm. a brand um, that we hoped would, you know, essentially just, um, I don't know, reach a certain like level of longevity, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many different models yep. though for this business mm-hmm. to your point. I think we made a, a particular decision in the way that we did because um, of how we envisioned our business. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's the suite in the studio model like you just referenced yeah. or, you know, that may be um, less capital intensive mm-hmm. and there are going to be pros and cons to like, you know, to each model, essentially. Yeah. So, and I would also say it was low six. So I don't want anybody thinking we spent half a million dollars to open yeah. a salon. OK, <laughs> also, you do certain things when you haven't done them before. Right. So even as we opened our second location, we are coming into this with a a different set of knowledge as you know, as we plan to open additional locations, we will be able to open them probably more efficiently, more effectively. Mm -hmm. Um, I will also say that just specifically to this business and maybe other businesses, maybe like a kitchen or a, 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 a restaurant, right? If you can find a location that was previously what you are trying to open you won't have to incur certain costs we literally built these spaces they were raw spaces so we had a certain set of just build out right Mm -hmm. we could make it be whatever we wanted it to be um but that comes with a certain level of you know cost that you have to incur even with tenant improvement allowance which we did receive from both of our yeah so um, and that's just something that you negotiate out, you know, just to those who end up watching this, um, ask for what you want. Don't be intimidated. All they can say is no. Um, and landlords are in the business of, you know, leasing their space out. So they know that there's some level of tenant improvement, right? It's, it was a dental office before you moved in with your salon, right? So we've got to make some adjustments here, um, but definitely ask for what you want. And um, yeah, I think we we definitely would open more efficiently. Um, and then size matters. Our first location is smaller, is about half the size of our second location. Mm. So, you know, all these things play into 
into um, investment, the outcome mm-hmm. and, the, and the investment that's required. So final mm-hmm. question on this section, you mentioned that you had done projections and most businesses that fail are going to fail before the five-year mark. You guys are year six, I believe now. Is that right? So congratulations, seriously, because I think it's rare that people make it this far. But at what point in that span of time did you break even and start to see that, okay, we no longer have to keep pouring personal funds into this business? So our break even, I want to say... Probably 15 months in, 15 to 18 months, we were into our second year. Yeah. Um, we, I want to say we only put money into our business maybe one time after our initial investment. And um, it was nowhere near, obviously, what the right. initial mm-hmm. investment was. Yeah. Now, this is like more of a, let's just, you know, help make payroll, right? Because maybe sales aren't where they need to mm-hmm. be. Um but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the beautiful thing of when we opened, um, we were very conservative with our projections. I would just encourage any entrepreneur, have your conservative and your aggressive, your optimistic um, projections, but incredibly conservative and um, watch those expenses because we can spend money on everything mm-hmm. all day. I mean, not everything has really to be super luxe. Things from Ikea look luxe, but aren't luxe, oh, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I don't, we don't suggest like, you know, don't trick out your business the way you would your home or anything like, or anything like that. Right. Um, I think in uh, everything Annika mentioned, I echo. I think the other thing too was, you know, we really tried to be, strategic and intentional about building anticipation for our business as well. Mm -hmm. So we were marketing our business before it even opened, right? We were, you know, recruiting for our business, obviously, well before it opened. Um, So in the same way, we were, you know, keeping our ducks in a row from an operations perspective, we were also trying to leverage the fact that we had a lower barrier to entry in our case, and that we didn't have a ton of competition in the city, we got people really excited about the business. Mm-hmm. We enlisted, you know, influencers and leaders in the area. So we, you know, we did what we needed to do from just a marketing um, perspective as well, even prior to the business opening. And I definitely want to dive into the details of marketing. But before that, you've mentioned payroll, you've mentioned trying to add or trying to recruit people in advance. So what is the model that you have in place? Are people renting booths or do you have full-time employees? And what roles did you hire given that this wasn't necessarily your area of expertise to, to deliver the service? Yeah, this was a lot of trial and error too. Mm -hmm. So um, our team is comprised of um, independent contractors, everyone who provides services. So we have estheticians as well as um, manicurists. Our um, contractors, they provide their own tools and... um, and, but they are a part of the 10 team. Mm-hmm. So we have house rules, right? Everybody, you know, still has to abide by house rules, but they make their own schedules. Um, they work as many hours or as few hours, how many, whatever days they It's a want. fine line because they're not employees, right? Mm-hmm. It is a fine line. And so, you know, we do border on um, 
are we giving you directives or are we coaching you and just giving customer feedback of what somebody has said about you? Mm -hmm. So there is a fine line and that even that's another discussion for even um, cosmetology based businesses, because a lot of them teeter on that line of employee versus contractor. Um, But we think we found a really nice balance of how to do that. And, and just say, hey, if you want to be a part of this team, this is just, these are our house rules. This is how we operate. Um, but the team that we started with and the structure that we started with is a little different from where we're at today. Um, similar, but a little different. We started with a lot of leadership. We had a general manager. Um, a lead technician, I think an assistant manager when we started, that has evolved several times. Um, And we now have a general manager who oversees both locations and assistant managers um, or concierge as we refer to them as well, who man our front desk and just make sure the entire show is running efficiently. Mm. So we've got pretty much three categories of people, senior leadership, general manager, um, assistant managers, concierge, and then service and providers. Contractor service providers, yeah. Um, so, I mean, to that end, the takeaway or insight there is that we started a little top heavy. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know how common the mistake is or not, but it is one that you could run into. Yeah. Um, and so we did have to right size the ship pretty, pretty quickly um, to make sure that we could hit our profitability numbers and early and also just like from an operational standpoint you know just because this is about being transparent and i hope that somebody can take some learning lessons if you don't have very defined like lines of who is doing what um and who reports to who that can get challenging as well um also compensation plans should be directly reflective of what you're trying to derive from the talent. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have a compensation plan that, you know, if it's very salary heavy, but they have goals and objectives and metrics that they need to meet and and you don't have the compensation sort of in line with that, um, or even a commission-based mm-hmm. structure that's yeah. not reflective of what you're Right, there's no incentive for people to go the extra people. mile if they're um, guaranteed the yeah. salary. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So a lot of learning, you know, and uh, um, here we are. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> here we are. Lots of lessons learned. So earlier you mentioned that you were fortunate that your first location was close to kind of the main business thoroughfare or thoroughfare, let's say that correctly. Um, how else did you advertise? You mentioned advertising before you even launched. So what did that look like? Because that's, some, that's something people struggle with is they have the build it and they will come mentality and people don't come. You're sitting there twiddling your thumbs and no one's walking through that door. And that's scary for a new business. So how did you advertise in the beginning versus how do you advertise for sustained um, clients to come through the door? So it sounds really simple, but I mean, we talked a lot about our business in strategic places. Mm. We attended certain certain events. We um, actually, we engaged a lot with our developers. So that's a point that we didn't make before about location and just being like a new entrant. But um, I think your 
being with a major developer or a developer that has a lot of skin in the game and, you know, more influence in the city was helpful. Um, you know, ultimately that developer obviously manages buildings throughout the city. Mm -hmm. So we were able to promote our business prior to tenants and other buildings. Um, we also tapped a lot of like influencers in the city, whether that be social influencers or just those who are considered business leaders, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we, we told them about the 10 first. So it was almost like they were in on something or knew something um, before like the general public did. Um, so it, it sounds all very simple, but it's more so like just playing on like the, the, the human instinct and that like just human connection element. People wanna be in the know. They wanna know something new is coming. Um, as a business owner, you have to be really out there and be advocating for your business. You should be able to very succinctly state like what you're offering and why it's different. Mm -hmm. um, so these are all things that we were doing like prior to uh, prior to opening. Also two just simple things like given where we decided um, to start the business and knowing that, okay, there were more residences, there were more residential buildings present before other businesses we would, you know, try to get with the uh, the property management staff um, at the different buildings and say, hey, this is an amenity for your, you know, tenants. Mm -hmm. So all of these types of things that were really more like guerrilla style marketing than it was anything truly sophisticated mm -hmm. prior to opening. I would say when we opened, we relied very heavily on social, which is probably not unlike what you know a lot of women say on this podcast but we relied very heavily on social so we were very active on social we always kept a very consistent active clean page we gave real-time updates about availability um we tapped social influencers more like micro um influencers in the city um and we essentially allowed them to come in and barter like for promoting our business, they were getting, you know, manis and petties. So um, it was, again, pretty like bootstrapped gorilla. Um, and we were just thankful to have a really warm reception because we were doing something new and different in the city at the time. Mm -hmm. so. And I think that was a big part of it too. We were the first, like, mm -hmm. and we really are, there, there's some other nail salons have come, but we were the first modern nail bar. This concept of, you know, champagne and it looking really lovely mm -hmm. and just, you know, being a space where people really wanted to be. You're not trying to just rush through and get your nails done. But I think there was also an advantage for us being in a market like Detroit. Um, it's a big city with a very close-knit community. And honestly, when you open in cities like this, you're able to get, you know, press with the the larger publications. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were written about, we had a lot of articles written about us. Um, and then the other part I think important to mention is just like simple things like our website, right? We even went through a website redesign because we want it to be very tech um, focused. Like we wanted this to be a very user-friendly experience. Mm -hmm. um, we have an app. We wanted to discourage calling and setting appointments. So like just how we looked visually online, we wanted it to be 
actually user friendly. I think we've all visited a salon before and we're like, do they actually check this website if I make this appointment on right. here, right? So yes, we're checking it. We're answering our email promptly. And you know, if you book on here, this is a confirmed appointment. So um, yeah, things like that as well, but. The core of it, though, is the brand and the brand promise. And I think that's what it always circles back to is, you know, whatever you're asserting and whatever you're promoting, you know, can you see it through? Like, can you complete the cycle mm -hmm. and, you know, do that in perpetuity? Mm -hmm is really um, one of the key things. I love that you said, can you see it through? Not when the hype is fresh when you first get started, but can you continue year after year to deliver on that brand, brand promise? And unfortunately, I think that's where sometimes in our community, we lose faith in each other because are they, you know, is that appointment actually a confirmed appointment? Is someone actually going to answer the phone? Um, is something that counts? The feeling that you leave people with, I think, will impact you because that's the word of mouth that might may or make or break your business. Um, but since launching, you've launched a second location. What does the future of the 10 look like? Are you planning on franchising? What does growth look like? We are planning for um, national expansion. So it's our goal for our next location to be out of state. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're not sure yet if we're going to move into the franchising model or keep it corporate owned, but, um, we are ready to, you know, expand nationally and, and replicate, um, the concept. Um, I think for us, you know, we kind of know our pillars now and we have enough experience in opening these initial two locations, um, to now be able to take it to, you know, to other cities that have a common void, I guess you can say. Mm -hmm. um, and really too, like it's exciting to be expanding and growing in an industry that we as black women, especially, you know, are patrons of and over index, but we've really been locked out. Over index. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For such a long time. And so we think that even that, that story and the underpinning and just like, you know, inherently who we are and what we're trying to do will assist us in, in you know, expanding and, and growing support as well. So what are you considering? What is going to be the deciding factor when you finally pull the trigger on launching? Because I I assume you will need more capital and perhaps more than you're willing to put up personally. Yeah. So this is the phase where which that's a great question um, and a good segue, because, yes, this is the phase in our business and the time in our business where we have invested in it. And we did it with intention initially. And now that we've proven the concept, you know, we are looking for others to, to believe in us too, in the way of invested capital. Mm -hmm. So um, that's where we are right now. Um, and speaking to, you know, different groups that will potentially invest in us um, and our growth. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of there. But if you could each give us a parting piece of advice for anyone who's hoping to follow in your footsteps, what would it be? Um, one thing we didn't touch on too much yet, but I think is important and is often controversial. It's easy to debate it, but um, there's been a lot of power in my partnership with Annika. Um, and the fact that we do have complementary skills 
And also too, just with the ebbs and flows of life, Mm -hmm. you know, just having um, someone else who you trust and can collaborate with and, you know, and have this shared vision with, I think that's, that's critical. Um, I won't venture to know the stats off the top of my head, but I do know that, you know, sound partnership, um, you know, tends to impact the success of a business as well. Um, so I think it is not required, but I think it could be extremely beneficial to have the right partner, um, in, in your business venture. Um, I think the other thing too is, you know, you have to be able to stay positive and ride the wave, right? You have to believe so much in what you're doing and always be able to get back to your why, um, you know, in a way that motivates you. Mm. So because no two days are the same, it is, you know, far more ugly than it is cute, despite what, you know, is promoted out here Mm -hmm. these days about entrepreneurship. But I know you know, for us is very worth it. So, um, you know, people definitely have to, as entrepreneurs feel that, um, to, to make it. Yeah. That self-motivation is very real, Mm. especially (laughs) when you're having floods and people are going crazy on you and all kinds of things. Yes. Um, I would say, um, I would just say that I feel like people need to do the work Um, I've had countless people call and ask for advice and for mentorship and, you know, can I get an hour of your time? Um, even just a a whole nother conversation like this, even though we've done them so many times, right? You can pull up this podcast, you can pull up somebody else's podcast or an article. Um, but so often, even when I, I do talk to people, I'm saying like, you have to do your own research. You can't coach your way out of it. You can't hire a business coach or a session, you know, do a session with somebody. Um, You can't go to a a conference, you know, women's empowerment conference. Like you have to just do some ugly work and and put some numbers on paper Mm. and see if it makes sense for the business that you're trying to create. Um, All of those things are great add-ons you know, to enhancing like your business knowledge and your network and your just confidence level, right? But you have to do the work. You have to do the work. Um, And it's different when you are managing people, managing facilities, um, obviously responsible to customers versus, you know, a solopreneurship. There are just different dynamics that are at play and you have to just take all of those things into account. Mm. But I would just say that you, at the end of the day, you have to do the work and it is late nights and um, early mornings of, you know, a lot of applications right now. I mean, we're filling out countless applications. I'm just, I'm tired of submitting information Mm. to people, but it's just part of the work. Um, that we're in right now is we're transitioning and and trying to find um, um, support, you know, capital support. So whatever phase of business that you're in, you have to do the work. And the only thing I'd add to that is, 
you know, I know that certain things can be intimidating for people if they don't necessarily have that finite experience, Mm -hmm. but at least have done enough work to ask the right questions, right? So sometimes for me, I'm like, if you were to tell me specifically that you needed help with your business projections or your numbers or this thing in particular that will take you to the next level, then I can maybe point you in the right direction. But I think you know, just you do have to do some mining and some work to even know what you don't know, Mm. if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. and be asking the right questions and using the time wisely of those that you're, you know, you're reaching out to. So that's a good point, Kelly, because I feel like a lot of times people are just frozen. And I felt like that too. I'm like, I don't know where to start, Mm. you know, but I also also tell people you need to get started. Like, you know, what, whether it's a Google search, we're picking up a book. Like I definitely have a book called how to open a salon, mm. you know, so you start there and then that will fuel questions. And, and then that'll point you into a direction. And a lot of people are just like, how do I, do I start an LLC or a C corp? Right. So that's a whole mm-hmm. conversation and, you know, uh, what is it? Legal zoom or somebody mm-hmm. like that. There are places like that where you can get that information. And there are people who specialize in that, who you can call. Um, but that's a good point. Sometimes it's like, I just have a specific question instead of like, how did you get started? Mm-hmm. Because that is, you know, that there's a lot to that. Right, exactly. You know, we just spent an hour talking about that. <laughs> yeah, but I do appreciate you guys being so transparent with us and sharing. And there's no amount of podcasts you can listen to that's going to tell you every single step. But at least this is going to give people the jumping point or jumping off point, they need to start asking the right question. And for that, I really appreciate you ladies today. Thank you for having us. Of course. This is great. Yeah, thank you. You know, it's good for us too. It motivates us that much more to... And you were very gracious host. Thank you. Thank you. you. I appreciate (laughs) that. Hi, Offscripters. I'm so glad you made it to the end of this episode. If you found this show helpful, please pay it forward by sharing us with your network and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Between episodes, you can find us on Instagram. Our handle is at She's Offscript. Or you can catch up on past episodes at She'sOffscript.com. All right, with that, we'll see you right back here next Thursday for another episode. Bye.